You're listening to the Restless Wanderer podcast by Paul Coulter, and this is part five of a series in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We'll pause there after verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 5. Now the Apostle Paul is in this book, of course, in this whole letter reflecting on the nature of his ministry um, and of uh, Christian living as a servant of God. At the end of chapter four, he's talked about the treasure that we have in jars of clay and the jar of clay is a picture of the body, the outer self, as he said in chapter four, verse 16, that is wasting away while the inner self is being renewed day by day. And then he said in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 4 that the light momentary affliction is preparing an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We, As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, hearing those words, you might think that means that the physical world is going to pass away and our eternal existence will be in a disembodied uh, reality, spiritual form without bodies. That, of course, is an idea that was around in Greek philosophy, Greek thinking, particularly associated with Plato, the one of the great Greek philosophers. Uh, and that's an idea that became very influential in the Christian church in the Middle Ages in particular, or by the Middle Ages, it had really reached its its peak, but the influence began uh, from the uh, really from the early days of Christianity. And it led to a way of thinking that said, well, the body is evil, the body is bad, and the things that are done in the body are bad, and the ultimate goal is to be released from the body. The spirit is good. The body is transitory, uh, and so what we should do if we want to be really holy is to deny the desires of the body. Uh, so the idea of chastity came in, that the most holy people are sexually pure. They don't engage in sexual activity because that's a very bodily thing and that must therefore be bad. So monks and nuns and priests were expected to be celibate. But of course, that thinking is not what the Apostle Paul is teaching. And the passage we've just read at the beginning of 2 Corinthians 5 helps to explain that. It, first of all, talks about the body that we now live in using a different image. 
not uh, this time the image of a jar, but the image of a tent. And then it ends, the passage that we've read, with the, uh, the, the assurance that the things that we do in the body can be either good or evil, and that we will face judgment for what we've done in these bodies. So the body that we now inhabit is certainly wasting away. It is prone to disease, to decay. It will die one day. And Paul makes that point at the end of chapter 4. He makes it again at the beginning of chapter 5. He says, verse 2, in this, grant, in this tent, rather, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. So, so there's an idea that there is uh, the, the groaning that goes on in our bodies. If you've got uh, arthritis, if you're not as young as you used to be, you, you know the kind of creaking of your joints. But Paul is talking about a deeper groaning than that, the weakness of our bodies, the fact that they are wasting away, they are prone to disease, they are limited in so many ways. Uh, our current bodies are mortal. That is something Paul has said in his earlier letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. He talks about the current body that is mortal and is, is subject to decay. In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul talks about the whole of this creation groaning. But it is groaning, looking forward to the day, Paul says in Romans 8, when the children of God will be revealed in glory. And within that context, there is a resurrection of our bodies. Paul says that in Romans 8. He says it also in 1 Corinthians 15. So in other words, what is coming is not a disembodied existence, but a new body. And that's what Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians 5. In this tent we groan. We long to put on our heavenly dwelling, the new body that will be able to live forever. The body that is, according to 1 Corinthians 15, imperishable, that is not subject to decay, that is free from the groaning uh, and the wasting away. Verse 3 explains that by putting it on, we may not be found naked. Uh, so the idea of nakedness, of, of a disembodied existence, is not normal human existence. Plato, in that sense, got it wrong. The problem is not that the body is evil, but that the body is subject to decay. And what we need is a new body that can live eternally. So, verse 1, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, if this body is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So, this eternal body. And that, of course, changes the Christian perspective on life, doesn't it? We know that this body and, and living as long as possible in this body is not the ultimate good. We live in a culture, of course, where people want to live longer and healthier, and that's quite right and quite proper. Um, it's a good thing that modern medicine has given us longer lives and gives us potential to live fuller lives in our physical bodies. But with that come a couple of problems. First of all, the idea that somehow medicine is going to be able to overcome all of our weakness and all, all of our disease, that we should be able to live forever. Or at least technology can do that. You even get people going into transhumanism, the idea uh, that we transcend the limitations of the human body through technologies, artificial intelligence and uh, bionics and 
so on, and, and that we might be able to live forever. But the reality is that the way this universe is configured, the laws of thermodynamics that mean that energy is moving from a more organised to a less organised state, in other words, decay, just as the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 8, that means that we cannot live forever in these bodies. It simply is not possible. So uh, eventually the energy in this universe will wear out. It might take a very long time, but it will happen. So eternal life is a myth in the universe as it's currently configured. We need new bodies. We need a new life, a new tent, and a heavenly home, a building from God. Only God can transcend the limitations on human life that God has imposed upon us as a result of our sin. Remember, mortality came uh, with sin. Uh, before that, Adam and Eve could have lived forever in the garden by eating of the tree of life. God excluded them from the garden so that they could not eat the tree of life or the fruit of the tree of life uh, and live forever. You read about that in, in Genesis 3. So the reality is that as long as we are in this tent, this body, we groan, we are burdened. And it's not that our longing is to be unclothed, verse 4 says, but to be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. The mortal body replaced by a living eternal body. And it is God who has prepared this for us, verse 5, and has given the Spirit as a guarantee. One of the things that the Holy Spirit does is to bring assurance of our salvation. And he assures us of God's good purpose. Again, you read that in Romans 8, the Spirit intercedes for us and he enables us to cry out, Abba, Father, as we wait for our uh, for for glory for the redemption of our bodies and the result of this now verse 6 is that we can be of good courage that is one thing the spirit brings to us this assurance that gives us courage to face life while we're at home in the body we're away from the lord we walk by faith not by sight we do not see the resurrection body yet. We don't see the Lord Jesus. We don't see the glory of God. We trust in these things. We put our trust, our faith in the promises of God. And the Spirit assures us that those promises are yes to us. As we saw earlier in Second Corinthians, all of God's promises are yes and amen to us in Christ Jesus. So we're of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. There is a healthy longing for the Christian to be away from the limitations of this body. I suppose that's something that non-Christians experience too at times in their life. When we're groaning with pain, when we're facing a diagnosis that is life-threatening, when we're going through a treatment plan that knocks us for six when we look at the limitations of our, our body as it ages or uh, if we face disability or progressive illnesses. And sadly, of course, in our culture, increasingly people are of the view that if that happens and you can't see hope for a, a better future, if it seems that your body is in uh, terminal decline, then you should have the freedom to choose to end your life through assisted dying. That's already happening in some countries. 
and there is constant pressure for it in countries like the UK where it isn't legal yet. But the Apostle Paul reminds us that what we are really longing for is not longer life in this body, not even a restoration of this body to what it was in our youth, but a greater future. And it is this that gives us courage to face life, even with physical limitations. That's why Christians don't and shouldn't entertain the idea of assisted dying, but should trust the Lord to say, as long as I have life in this body, I will live for you. I might be away from you. I would rather be away from the body. I'd rather be at home with the Lord. But verse 9, whether I'm at home or away, my aim will be to please him. I will live for him. I will do what brings him pleasure, what delights his heart. I will do his will. I will do what he calls me to do. I will obey his commands. I will follow the leading of his spirit. I will live for him. That was what inspired Paul in his ministry. It's what should inspire me and you in our relationships and in our work, whatever it is that God has given us to do, that our desire, our aim is to please him. And we do this with an eternal perspective, verse 10. We know that we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, this is not, um, I think it's right to say, this is not the, the great white throne of judgment that appears towards the end of Revelation, where uh, the judgment is for eternity of either entering into the new creation, the new Jerusalem, or not. Um, and that judgment is very clearly not on the basis of the works that we have done. There, in that judgment, the works, the books that record our works, you can read about this in Revelation chapter 20, um, right down at the end of the chapter, verses 11 to 15. The books that are opened contain the record of our deeds, and based on that record, all of us are deserving of hell, of judgment. But people are spared from that and given eternal life in the new creation if their name is written in another book, the book of life. In other words, entering into heaven is not based on our works. It is based on what Christ has done for us and our faith in him. But there is another sense in which the judgment seat of Christ that Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 5 is a judgment of the works that we have done. Again, back in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 3, Paul has talked about this same principle. He talks there about the works that people build on the foundation of Christ. And he talks about those works being tested by fire. Uh, and he says that if the work is unworthy, it's made of wood or hay or straw, it will be burnt up. And only those works that are built of, that are worthy, made of gold, silver and precious stones, will pass through the fire and last eternally. It's the same idea that is here. We will receive what is due for what we have done in the body, whether good or evil. So our salvation will not depend on our works, but there is a sense in which Christ will judge, will evaluate our works. And those works that are not worthy will not pass into eternity. And those that are will. It's like a testing of fire. And uh, back in 1 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that even the person whose works are burnt up because their foundation is Christ, they will be saved as one snatched from the fire. 
So the question here is, what will we carry with us into God's new creation of the things that we do now in the body? Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Jesus will last. That little line that, of course, is so famous from missionary circles, attributed to C.T. Studd, a great missionary uh, pioneer. So what about you? What about me? What am I doing with this body? What has God given it to me for and what has he given me to do in it? That's the question. So our life has purpose and we have courage to face life. There is suffering and struggle, but there is also work to be done for God, for his glory, for his eternal kingdom. That's the perspective that we should approach every question, every decision with. What does God want me to do? What has he given me this body for? I am not my own, as Paul wrote again to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. You can read that. I am bought with a price, so I will honour God with my body. This body may be wasting away, but it is my home for now, and it is given to me so that I can do good for God. Let me not give it to evil. Let's read the rest of first, Second Corinthians 5 then from verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the ministry or the message rather of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What wonderful verses as we end chapter 5 of Second Corinthians. Now, Paul continues his thinking here that what we do in the body can be done for good. So Paul says we know the fear of the Lord. That's that reference to the judgment seat of Christ. We know that it is to him that we will answer. Now, some people take that and they say, so live for an audience of one. Uh, and I understand what they mean. If By that, if they mean don't let other people and their judgments and their opinions keep you back from living for Christ, that is good. Sadly, you will find, even amongst Christians, there are many who do not live their lives with the, the judgment seat of Christ in view. They don't live as if what matters is eternity. They live as if they are at home in this present world, as if this body was all there was. 
when you look at how they live, use their money and their houses and their cars and all of their resources, how they think about their health. But don't let those people hold you back from living wholeheartedly for God. But the audience of one idea is dangerous at the same time. Paul is not unaccountable. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, he's laying his heart open to others. He, he's reminding us that we live for others as well as for Christ. And that's why he says to the Corinthians, we persuade others. We have a concern for others. We want them to fear the Lord, to recognise the judgment seat of Christ is coming. And he says what we, we are is known to God. And I hope it's also known to your conscience. In other words, there is an audience of one and there is the audience of everybody else. And what we want to show to them is the reality of what we are. Paul, as we've seen already in Second Corinthians, is adamant with them that he has been sincere and honest. The real deal, what they see is what they get. And what they see is the real thing. Paul is not deceiving them in any way. And so he says, we're not commending ourselves to you again. We're giving you cause to boast about us, verse 12, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. In other words, there are these false ministers, these false apostles, as Paul will, will call them, who uh, are presenting themselves as being powerful and strong. And it's all about the outward appearance. It's all about impressing others, about building a reputation for oneself. It's not about what is in the heart. Those people put all the emphasis on the outside and they're living as if what was present is what is eternal. So they are not sincere Christian ministers. And these Corinthians should be able to look at Paul and say, Paul, with all of his weakness, is the real deal in his sincerity. And these people are not. And Paul says, verse 13, if we're beside ourselves, it's for God. If we seem crazy to you, it's because we are living for God. We're living for the new creation. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. If this makes sense to you, then follow our example. Live that way. Verse 14, the love of Christ controls us. If one died for all, all have died. Paul is appealing to Christians to understand themselves as people who have died with Christ, no longer alive to the things they once lived for, no longer living, verse 15, for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. If you're a Christian, please get this message right from the Apostle Paul that you must live for Christ. And the consequence of this, verse 16, is that we have a new perspective. We don't regard people according to the flesh. The flesh meaning the body. Now Paul does use flesh elsewhere to describe what is sometimes translated as the sinful nature um, and uh, the idea of, of our sinful desires. But again, even there, I think we, should, we shouldn't stray too far from the literal meaning of the word flesh, which is the body. Because the key thing here is that Paul is saying that we don't see only what is physical. You see, if you judge only by what is physical, then you will be impressed with those who look beautiful and who sound impressive. And who look strong and gifted. You, you won't be impressed by the weak people of the world. You, you won't give them a second glance. You'll look right past them. Paul says 
we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. Well, what would happen if you looked at Jesus that way? Was he impressive physically? Not according to Isaiah, the end of Isaiah 52 into chapter 53. He had nothing to impress us. There was nothing about him that was uh, beautiful. In fact, when it came to his suffering, you would have turned your face away in disgust. So beaten and bruised was he. You would say here is one who is weak, even under the curse of God, being judged for sin. And yet it was God who was punishing him for our transgressions. You see, Paul used to look at Jesus that way when he was a persecutor of Christians. God, Jesus was, was just another false messiah for Paul, another teacher who had misled people, another one who had uh, got beyond his station and who had followed, led people away from the law of God. But Paul says we don't see Jesus that way any longer. When we see by the Spirit of God, when we see things the way they are, the new creation. He says if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. It's a, a very strong statement in verse 17. Literally, if anyone is in Christ, if they have put their faith in him, they belong to Jesus, that is their identity, then the new creation has already come. The old has passed away. The new creation that we are looking forward to, we do not yet have our heavenly dwelling, our new resurrection body, but we are inwardly, remember chapter four, inwardly being renewed by the spirit who is the guarantee of what is to come. We already have eternal life. Jesus said that this is eternal life in John 14, verse six, I believe that we should know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent, that we know we know God as Father. That is what it is to have eternal life. And if you are a Christian, you already have it. And all of this comes from Christ, who through, or from God rather, verse 18, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Here is the, the call. What it is to be in Christ is to be reconciled to God. In the person of Jesus, verse 19, through his cross, although Paul doesn't say it here, but that's clear in Colossians, where he also talks about reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself, not condemning us for our trespasses, but, but bringing us back to himself. And the message of reconciliation has been entrusted, the ministry and the message of reconciliation to, well, to Paul, and to the apostles, and I would say that this language applies supremely to the apostles. We are ambassadors, Paul says, of, of Christ, verse 20. Strictly, I think, that ambassador term, although it's often used of Christians more broadly, strictly it applies to the apostles, because an ambassador has authority to speak for the country that the ambassador represents. And the apostles had an authority to speak for Christ that you and I as ordinary Christians, if you like, don't have. But there is a sense in which this ministry of reconciliation is passed on, this message of reconciliation that Paul and the other apostles received from Christ that was entrusted to them by him, uh, have passed on to us the apostolic message that God was making his appeal through the apostles. And we too can implore people on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. And what does that mean? 
Well, reconciliation is not simply the restoration of a relationship as if, you know, well, we just didn't know God and we need to come to know him. That is part of it. But it's much greater than that. Verse 21 says that he who had no sin, who knew no sin, that's the Lord Jesus, the sinless son of God, was made to be sin. In other words, he took our sin, he bore our sin, he became a sin offering. That's probably what's in Paul's mind, the sin offering of the Old Testament. He took our place. He took the punishment that should be us, ours. The wrath of God against sin was poured out on Jesus. God on the cross treated him and Jesus willingly gave himself to be sin, to take the consequence of sin, to be treated as if he was sin. Not his own sin, but ours. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might be made right with God, justified, as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 3. We might become the declaration that God is just and makes people just. We stand righteous in Christ. We who were sinners, now made right with God, declared not guilty, declared to be the children of God, made into a new creation. That's the reconciliation. It's not simply a restored relationship. It is a transformed person. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Rejoice in that today and live for the judgment seat of Christ. Make it your goal to please him. Give yourself fully to the life that lives no longer for yourself. And that's the culture we live in, isn't it? Live for yourself. Satisfy yourself. Fulfill yourself but live for him who for your sake died and was raised.